Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second edition of Lights, Camera, Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Galtieri. So happy to have you on board, which should be a very exciting show. We have a very exciting guest, Luke Russer. So nice of us to uh, join us here on Lights, Camera, Sports, former NBC News correspondent, uh, and more importantly, to me at least, a classmate at uh, Boston College with me. And uh, Luke, thanks so much for uh, joining us here on Lights, Camera, Sports. Yes, but I believe a fellow communication major. So yes, that's good right. To be on with you, Mike. Yeah, Ma- remember uh, Professor Keith? I remember a couple Professor classes. Professor Keith, the the radio man himself, who <laughs> now I believe writes uh, horror stories. So go check those short story horror stories out. They're out there somewhere. He's the next R.L. Stein. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so Luke, uh, I haven't seen you in a while. How have you been? Uh, obviously, you've been very busy uh, with the NBC News, and now taking some time off for yourself. That's right. I started at NBC uh, right after graduation from Boston College, and I covered the 2008 presidential campaign, and then from about 2009 through July of uh, 2016, covered Capitol Hill, primarily the House of Representatives. It was a very interesting time to be in Washington. You saw uh, President Obama at the peak of his power in the first few years, the Republican Revolution, inspired by the Tea Party in 2010, and increasing amounts of gridlock and intense partisanship. Uh, President Obama's re-election, back and forth, back and forth, big issues of the day, health care, government shutdown, Supreme Court decisions, uh, everything in between. And uh, I did even some of the last race covering Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump at a few rallies and Marco Rubio. So I think it's safe to say I've had my fill of American politics over the last uh, eight eight years and taking some some well-deserved time off in my in my mind yeah that's that's well said too let's backtrack obviously you grew up in washington dc uh were you were you into politics were you more into sports growing up in the district of columbia uh i would say they're both kind of equal uh you know i grew up in a very political household my father being tim russert the late moderator meet the press my mom maureen orth the writer for vanity fair so politics was always discussed around the the dinner table uh, at a young age, and being an only child, I was really subjected to talking to adults because a lot of my parents' friends were adults, and sometimes they'd bring their kids over, but sometimes they they wouldn't. And when I was home, it wasn't like I had a little brother or sister to talk to. A lot of the times, I would be talking to the adults who came through, and uh, you know, a lot of those conversations that I overheard were about politics. And you get pretty smart pretty quickly. I mean, it's similar to L.A. It's one industry town in that. Politics are front and center. Certainly there's other things that have grown up around it, uh, especially in recent years, other types of industries. But that really is what much of the town revolves around. So I was always uh, had my a keen interest in it. All that being said, though, I was equally fanatical about sports, uh, starting out watching you know, Orioles games because the Nationals didn't exist back then. My father was a very passionate Buffalo Bills fan. That was passed down to me. Uh, obviously watching the the Wizards, then the Bullets, and really just watching all sports in general. I mean, we were one of the first families on our block. It was 1993 to get the DirecTV dish. Uh, wow. And it was so new back then in 1993 that there, had, there was a guy who had to drive down from Baltimore to install it because there was nobody in Washington that knew how to install the satellite dish wow. uh, that my father got because he wanted so badly to watch the Bills at home. So uh, it was one of those things where, where both were, were certainly big and, and, and 
they're both to this day things that I just devour uh, on social media and through the newspapers and TV and whatnot. Well, you brought back some memories for me because I remember I got that too growing up. That was it's a Sunday yeah. ticket. It was awesome. You could even watch it. Uh, like, you have to remember. I mean, you and I were probably like the last of the generation that remembers how hard it was to get things into your home uh, 24-7. You know, I, quick story. I was helping a friend of mine's little brother move into Georgetown University a, a few years ago. And in, these guys have a beautiful house, and everything's all set up. And I go, well, where's the TV? And they go, why would we want a TV? We have everything we want on the computer. If there's a game we want to watch, we go to the sports bar. And you you know, you remember, Mike, when you and I were in college, the TV was the first thing that moved into the, the room or the house. Yeah, you know, <laughs> no question. About everything it. else was secondary. The TV was number one. Now the TV is secondary. So it just shows you the viewing habits and how much they've changed in our short lifetime. Yeah, and you see it too. ESPN loses subscribers. It, it's called oh, full yeah. circle. Yeah, and the NFL ratings are down to a degree as well. And it, it, there's just there's an oversaturation of the media market. Everything is on demand. People can choose what they want at any given moment. And yeah, it takes a lot to get people to sit through commercials these days. It really does. You mentioned it too, uh, Luke. You know, growing up in D.C., your father meet the press moderator Tim Russert. What was that like? Would you go to his shows growing up a lot and on Sunday mornings, or did you kind of step say the side? Well, Sunday morning I'd like to sleep in most of the time, <laughs> but it was a it was a it was a very big marquee guest that I was especially interested in. I would certainly tag along and. Uh, I grew up around TV studios and on, on locations uh, near and far in the United States. I was always comfortable being around the wiring and the cameras and all that because I tagged along a lot. I was mainly interested when he would interview athletes. You know, he interviewed Yogi Berra, interviewed Derek Jeter, Ted Williams at one point, which was really a remarkable wow. time, Michael Jordan. Uh, he even interviewed Allen Iverson when Allen Iverson was a rookie. Uh, so I really like to be around those. The politicians, the, the president was unique, but when you're a kid, you, you, you know the president, you know the vice president, you might know a senator here and there, but everybody else, you're kind of like, yeah. And now I look back on it, and I say, man, you know, my dad had Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein on Meet the Press at one time, and I, I could have gone to that. And I, <laughs> you know, I didn't really appreciate it, because when you're 10 or 12, you don't really care about what happened at Watergate. You know? Yeah, Michael Jordan so, and the Bulls sounds Yeah, Michael good. Jordan was much more interesting, and uh, he was... It was funny. The first time I met him, he had a great line. It was in um, it was in in the spring, and it was during the day. And he goes, "Why aren't you in school?" And I said, "Well, I came to see you." He goes, "Yeah, school's more important." Oh. <laughs> said, right. line. You know, that's yeah. that's all about perspective. Yeah. You're right. So- yeah. And now, had I had I been wiser then I said well then why'd you leave after your junior year but you know I, I was that smart then <laughs> <laughs> that's tough for a 10 year old yeah uh talk about that's great segue for school I hope I'm pronouncing this right but you went to high school in, is it St. Albans school St. Albans Albans yeah. school and uh in the, is that in Washington D.C. yeah it's in Washington D.C. I know it has a great a, sports program I've yeah it's a, good, a pr- pretty good sports program uh when I play interestingly enough I played football there uh all through high school and my junior year in our little conference called the Interstate Athletic Conference, there was actually uh, five future NFL players, which is pretty remarkable because this is a private school league in in D.C. and in Maryland and Virginia suburbs. Wow. Uh, So there was a lot of talent there. Do you know who they were? Uh, Who were the players? uh, Yeah, a guy named Marcus Mason who played for the Redskins a little bit. The guy who's still in the league now named Tim Hightower. Yep. Uh, I think he's with the Saints now. 
guy named Moses Fuku who did special teams for the Eagles, a guy named Tenard Jackson who was actually really good for the Bucks, but I think he, he failed the league's drug test policy. And then there's another guy named Rashad Woodard uh, who was a practice squad player. I forgot who he was with. But there was a lot of guys in, at that time in that conference, and it was just it was a fun time to play. Uh, but it's an almost interesting place. I mean, it's just, it's a place that's really known for a lot of its alumni who go on into politics and and, and service and things of that nature. But the sports are pretty good, pretty good. Uh, and, and and this is that's kind of the interesting story of this region is growing up here. I've been firsthand to see it emerge as a basketball powerhouse. It's always been very big for lacrosse and had a decent football reputation. Uh, but in in the last few years, I mean, basketball, kind of starting with Rudy Gay and, and Durant, has just really blown up. Uh, and, and Steve Francis, I think, was probably the pioneer of it back in the day, great Maryland player. But that's really what the area does now is basketball and lacrosse. Yeah, yeah, well said too. I think Gary Williams, obviously, he played a good role in Maryland, right, and helped yeah, out those the, yeah. the programs in that area, did well recruiting. So. Yeah, and that was a big thing in in. That really spearheaded it is that you know, people talk about the championship drought in D.C., which don't get me wrong, is god awful. But that 2002 Maryland basketball team, I mean, that was so big here, and and that I mean, that team they had was all local: Juan Dixon, Lonnie Baxter, Chris Wilcox. You know, those were just great, great players. And the funny thing about that team is the only guy who's still in the NBA is Steve Blake who literally looks like he should be selling you a TV at Best Buy. I mean, if you had told me that the only guy who would be still in the NBA from the 2002 Maryland Championship team was Steve Blake, I would have bet a lot of money against you on that one. So good for Steve Blake for getting a contract. That's yeah. incredible. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. I was grew, I grew up in Connecticut in the Hartford area, and I drove up, I remember this, to Syracuse for that Elite Eight game, UConn oh, versus yeah? Maryland. Um, and I remember Blake nailed a couple big shots over to Juan Dixon down the stretch. Yeah. Karan Butler for UConn had a big game, but it wasn't enough. That Maryland team was very yeah, good. Yeah, Karan, Karan, great player. And, and, and you gosh, UConn back then, that was uh, that was a very good UConn team with, with Karan. And I, my favorite UConn team was the one that upset Duke. I think it was, what, 98? Yeah, and 99, Elton yeah, Brand. 99. I, so I went to that. I went to that with my father. And I, wow. that team, uh, Khalid Alamine, yes. Ricky Moore, Jake Voskel, I mean, and, and Rip Hamilton. And nobody gave him a chance to beat Duke. I mean, nobody. Nobody. I mean, I think Duke was, what, 35-1 and going into that game? They had one loss to Cincinnati. Yes, which, which is a little they, surprising. They, they just, Incredible. 77-74. I'll never forget that because I hated Duke. I still hate Duke to this day. And I was just so happy when UConn beat them. It was so great. Yeah, that's one of the classics. You're right. Yeah, and Elamine, I mean, he was in the league for a few years. and I think Jake Voskel was in the NBA, too, which is shocking. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The girls are great coaches. Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams back in the day. Oh, yeah. So that's a great segue, too. You obviously grew up following college sports, Luke. How did you right. focus on Boston College? Were you looking at a bunch of schools? How did you decide to come up to Boston uh, for college? You know, I wanted to go to a school that I probably could have played sports at the D3 level. I could have probably been a, a, a glorified D3 football player if I wanted to. But football was a lot of work and it was a lot of physical endurance, and I was kind of tired of it by the time I was a senior since I played since I was 11. So... I wanted to go to the school that was D1 because I wanted to have a sports culture that was also good academically and relatively in or near a city. And when you get that to that uh, criteria, you basically get Boston College, you know, Stanford, UVA, Vanderbilt, 
Uh, and I guess you can throw Notre Dame in there, but it's kind of a cornfield in Indiana, as you know, having been out there a few times. Although they claim Chicago, but Chicago is really far away. It's, it's the equivalent of like you know being in Hartford and claiming Boston. Exactly, it's not that close. <laughs> it's not that close. Uh, but I, I, Stanford was probably going to be a, a tough poll, and I thought Vanderbilt was a little bit too in love with the Confederacy. So I made I, I liked. BC, it just fit. I liked the Jesuit values. I liked the the campus size. I was very excited about the move to the ACC. Uh, that was very important to me as a pr- prospective viewer of sports. Uh, and you know, when you and I were there, that was the golden era. Yeah, we I were mean, I, I never thought I'd look back on that and say, "Wow, that's as good as it was ever going to get." I thought we would get better. Uh, but man, I mean, what we rose up to number two. In the basketball rankings, yeah, you know, and I, I tell you, I I joined the basketball team as a manager freshman year, just looking yeah. to get involved. And that year, uh, a good year, the year well, before, twenty and zero, twenty yeah, and zero, exactly. So I, I didn't right. even know what I was walking into. I couldn't believe it. It was, no, it was great. And people should remember that when you and I were sophomores. I mean, that team, yes, really should have gone to the Final Four. Yep, because uh, that team had three NBA players on it. And and was just an extraordinary team. I mean, it was with Dudley and Craig Smith and Sean Williams and, uh, and Sean Marshall, yeah, Tyrese yeah, Rice, and Sean Marshall, Lewis Hinnant, Tyrese Rice yep. as the backup. I mean, that team was just stacked. And uh, no Big question. Sean's problems and <laughs> I would argue some coaching against Villanova ended up sinking that dream. That Villanova game still hurts to that day. The buzz, they yeah, really, we were up, what, like 32-5 to five or something to start out? Yes. Just, oh. And goaltending oh. called, lose the game on a backdoor goaltending. Terrible, terrible, you know, terrible. It's funny, too. I Now I'm just thinking about it. I remember seeing your father after the game in Minneapolis. At, yeah, after that he game. went to the game. He went yeah. to. The, he was a diehard fan. I mean, he just he adopted BC sports like he had you know been there his entire life. And he went to that game and... I think he sat with uh, Craig Smith's mom. Wow. Uh, he sat with her behind her, and uh, you know, with the, the Gene B. Filippo and the AD back then. Yes. And we, you know, we all thought we were going to the Elite Eight. I, I didn't think Villanova was going to be too much of a problem. Yeah. And to this day, I just I, you know, I don't mind Villanova. I was very happy they won. I think it was good for Catholic school basketball. They won. Uh, but that Villanova team just takes me. That guy Mike Nardi. I'll never get him out of my head. Just that, oh, God, skinny, just little white guy, you know, screaming, slapping the floor, launching threes. Oh, it drove me crazy. It drove me crazy. <laughs> kind of like a Greg Paulus type, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Greg Paulus in, in a Villanova uniform, same thing, same thing. <laughs> but I, I can attest, too, talking about your father being a big fan. I remember talking. I remember we got, like, a burger after the game in the hotel lobby. I was with my parents, yeah. too. And he, you could see the disappointment in his face. We all were disappointed. But yeah. there's no question about it. He was a huge fan, and uh, oh, we you watching- and, and you know that team was—they were so likable. But the other thing about that team was they were those guys were all very smart. I mean, to this day, I'm a Wizard season ticket holder, and uh, you know we had Jared Dudley on the team for a few seasons, and so I got to catch up with him. And you know, Jared Dudley is very in tune to politics, and Jared Dudley used to watch Meet the Press in college. Uh, and and have opinions and, and talk about them frequently and you know write them down and, and whatnot and, and you know Lewis Hennett too I mean those guys were those were smart guys and that was a very smart team and I thought I just thought they were going to go so far because they would outsmart guys on the court all the time 
uh, and, and no one would give him a chance. They were just so good at spacing and, and mental awareness. And oh man, yeah, we know. Still hurts. Still we, hurts. Ten years later, we had the Al Skinner flex going. You're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talking. And I'm happy Al Skinner got a job. Was he in Northern New Mexico? Or no, he's in Kenishinaw State, Kenishinaw right? Kenishinaw State, Georgia, yeah, just outside of Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. New Mexico Spaziani, the football coach. That's what it is. Yeah. The, these. Uh, yeah. They're out there, you're right. But you're right. It's good that Al Skinner is get back. I think he'll eventually get back to the major, uh, a big, big five school. Soon. Well, he should. And you know, he was always, in my opinion, I thought he was a very good coach. But it, he got kind of run out of there because he wasn't willing to adapt to what the modern profession had become, which is essentially you have to be a spokesperson. And you know, things like midnight madness, pumping up the student body, and, and whatnot. But I mean, if you want any this legitimacy regarding Al Skinner, I mean, look at how successful his assistants have been. I mean, what Ed Cohen's done at Providence is remarkable. I mean, he's resurrected that program. Yeah, and, Ed Cooley. Yeah, Ed, yeah, Cooley. Excuse me, Cooley. Yeah, yeah Bill Cohen in Northeastern and, too. You're and Bill right. Cohen in Northeastern. Yeah, and 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 it's just yeah. I, I wish we had gotten one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, they look pretty good right now. Yeah. So talk about just talk about your life at BC. What were your favorite any favorite bar to hang out with? And where was your where was your go to places around uh, campus? I liked Rogies. Yeah, yep. uh, I would always say you eat at Rogies, you drink at Marianne's. Uh, <laughs> but you know, as you remember, the lines at Marianne's were just insane when we were in school there. Yeah. I think they Tuesday still night. Are. Yeah, and I there was a great bar at BC that. Uh, I'll tell you a story about that. And Tuanua, if you recall. It was a little yes, further closer yes. to BU. Right by right Kenmore. Down. Yeah, right by Kenmore. He went right down Beacon Street. And a great story is I was driving. In college, I had a 1997 Toyota 4Runner with the big wagon there in the back. And I was driving. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. night. And I see Hinnant and Craig Smith and Sean Marshall uh, on the street corner, like trying to find a cab, and there's no cab to be seen. And I go, Birdman, hey man, you need a ride. And he goes, It's my birthday. I want to go to Antuanua. <laughs> I said, All right. So Craig Smith got in the trunk, and Lewis Hinnant got up front, and and we had Sean Marshall and Dudley both in the back. And I just said to myself, Lord, don't crash. There's an NBA draft pick in your trunk right now. <laughs> so you were their Uber driver. You were pre-Uber. pre-Uber. You were their Uber driver. <laughs> I was their Uber, pre-Uber. Yeah, so it was not easy to get a, a taxi cab at Boston College in, in between 2004 and 2008. That was a great difficulty. So I tell these kids now, I said, you're very lucky you have the Uber because we had to deal with these terrible cab companies that would show up half the time. And remember, people would steal cabs. They yeah. would steal cabs. You have some, yeah, you you have some uh, some mean spirited person from from the Hamptons or Westchester County, New York, who'd go out there and pay off the cabbies twenty bucks to to, to take away their pre orchestrated fare and go off on their own. Yeah, terrible. and they had no idea really proving it because you no, had no they name. Or they'd be, or you just say, hey, how much is? Hey, I'll give you ten bucks. You take me now. Okay, yeah, it's terrible. Jeez. So you were you were double major BC right communications history? yeah history and com yeah that's perfect for you yeah I I enjoyed it and uh, the history major was it was uh, it was challenging but I, I learned a lot and you have to have your thesis there and I did it on Tony Blair's foreign policy so I, I enjoyed that and, you know I like BC I, I thought BC was a very comfortable place to to go to school. Uh, 
I wish the administration would have been a little bit more lax about letting kids have a good time. They're already adults when they're there. They don't need to be babied. Yes. Uh, but overall, I thought it was a pretty good place. And you also, I remember, too, I was doing some research. I forgot, but you did a sports show with James Carville, 6020 Sports. I did. Four sports. years of sports radio, 6020 Sports, a generational look at sports. Uh, did it at XM before it became Sirius XM. And actually did a few tapings, I think, uh, close to where you are, right there at WBZ and Soldier Road. Uh, it was that Alston, Brighton area. Yes. Um, and that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. That was a, a, a show that we had, you know, James and my father shared season tickets to the Wizards and to the Nationals. And that was a show that kind of came about because we would go to these games and James and I would have these very intense sports discussions. And one day, some guy who sat behind us said, "You know, I'm just—we've—I've learned a lot from hearing you guys talk about <laughs> sports because you come at it from two completely different angles with a generational perspective. You know, you guys should pitch a show." And we kind of laughed about it. And at that time, Sirius and XM was in the middle of a huge arms race. It was before they merged, so and they were literally throwing money at, at anything. They were just acquiring property because they wanted to have exclusivity over whoever. Uh, James is a little bit bigger of a fish than I am, but I said, hell, why don't we just throw it out there and see what happens? We did a few demos, and they liked it, and it was a once-a-week show. We were able to do it uh, in different locations, and then when I was back in D.C., we did it in the same room, and we signed on for two. It went for four. It was a lot of fun, and I miss it to this day. We both had our, both our day jobs got too intense in the Twitter social media age to be able to continue to do it, but that was a lot of fun. I remember. And, I remember uh, you telling me. Did you have a little studio set up on? Was yeah, it Foster yeah. Street? I built one in, in my off-campus apartment. Yeah, uh, on Foster Street. Yeah, right? using yeah using <laughs> uh, towels and sheets and and going down to Chinatown in Boston to one of those foam stores in Chinatown and, and bargaining for. Uh, illegal toxic foam. It's great. <laughs> That's a good story. You wonder who's yeah. living there now. You didn't, they uh, never yeah. know. Good luck. Good luck to them. <laughs> and then we, as you transitioned, we had the, and then we graduated BC 2008. And then, yeah. I, you know, I was at ESPN working uh, right out of college in Bristol as a production assistant. I remember hearing that awful news, your father's passing, right? Yeah. Right. I think it was June 08, right after. Like, it seemed like yeah. I saw your dad at college graduation, and I was just shocked. Yeah, just a few weeks afterwards, yeah. I was shocked, yeah. and I couldn't believe yeah. it. Uh, you did such a good job, though, that your, the, the service, I remember it was on, broadcast live everywhere mm-hmm. on national mm-hmm. TV. You want to just talk about that quickly, how difficult that process was that time period? Oh, well, certainly. I, it's, it's never easy for anybody who's been through that process, losing someone close to them, but especially, you know, a parent who so friendly with. And then in my case, it was very much a public affair, more of a public affair than I think uh, my mother or I or our extended family ever anticipated. We knew he was loved, but we did not know that he was beloved at the level uh, that the public informed us of in in terms of what the reaction was. But at some point, I, I truly believe this, you kind of internalize your craft, you have an idea of what you want to say, and some other power takes over, and, and you just roll with it. And that was sort of people asked me about that time. And I honestly, I don't remember much of it in terms of the moments. I remember just focusing on what I wanted to say and just just that being the end-all, be-all and, and, and going forward and, and pursuing that. And uh, I look back on some of the things that during that time, and I said, oh, I don't remember that, or, wow, I really said that. <laughs> I, I joked to a friend of mine, I said, I almost feel like Will Ferrell in old school, that debate scene, it's 
some moments, <laughs> you know, to, to make light of it. Uh, but it was it was a very difficult time, and it was a very, I think, it was a very transformative time for me because uh, it, it showed me the power of, of words. It showed me my father's own legacy and, and what that meant. And then also, uh, it, it sort of opened this, oddly enough, it opened this door into, into TV where I became this comforting figure to many and then to others this idea of, okay, this is a young person who can, can speak uh, pretty fluently about topical issues. You know, we should transition him to, to television in some capacity. And I was always kind of hesitant. Uh, at first about it because I didn't want it to sort of seem like, oh, you know, my father passed away and now I'm suddenly going on television. But the more and more I studied and the more and more I looked at it, I said, okay, I can I can use this to, to make a difference in my own mind and, and to sort of, I think, talk about an issue that has not gotten enough attention, which was the prevalence and strength of the youth vote in 2008, an election that really inspired a lot of young people. Uh, as opposed to the ones I've seen before, so I sort of went into it with with that perspective, and it was certainly not easy, and there were a lot of ups and there were a lot of downs, but it was a really transformative and, and good learning experience, and something that I carry with me to this day. Yeah, you know, I look, I give you a lot of credit. We were weeks away from graduating college, and for you to go speak that way, and that your father, yeah. says, that's that's. A, that takes a lot to do. I really well, thank you. I, yeah, it's uh, it's something that uh, I look back on, and I just uh, I'm, I'm thankful that whatever forces with me worked. Use the force, Luke. <laughs> yeah, you know, well said. You know, I think what made your father so great was the moments. Like I had my moment with him at Minneapolis Sports yeah. Bar after the game, and millions of other people have their own moments where they could relate. He was just a normal guy having a burger after the game. Oh yeah, that, that was his. Yeah. It wasn't his spiel. I mean, that's really the way he was, and that's what was so funny is, is I'd have these people tell me these stories, and they'd be like, I couldn't believe it. I'm just like, yeah, that's literally what he did. I mean, it was not uncommon that he would, on Friday nights, go to this little ma-and-pa Italian restaurant in D.C. and sit at the corner of the bar with his research and drink uh drink rolling rock and, and have a plate of pasta and just go through his notes. I mean, that was <laughs> that was pretty normal. I don't think in a million years you'd catch another T V anchor doing that. <laughs> because you know, there's this real era of self importance in television news where people think because you know, they're interviewing senators or representatives or presidents or heads of state that they're somehow uh that they've somehow reached this elevated sense of supreme being and quite honestly Really, what helped him was staying grounded. And uh, you look at the prevalence now of social media. I truly believe that people kind of become enamored and narcissistic with their following, and then that has a, a, a negative effect on how they report or how they act themselves or, or what they do on TV. And I had a very smart producer that I first started. He goes, "Be as human. Be a human as long as possible." when you go on television. Yeah. <laughs> There's real truth to that. There's real truth to that. And that's great segues. We're joined yeah. by Luke Rutzer here, Lights, Camera, Sports, a couple more minutes. But just talk about how you, the day-to-day life, what was that like working at NBC News? Is there a story that sticks out to you uh, that you really enjoyed covering? Um, I really enjoyed having the front row seat to history on Capitol Hill. And the Capitol is just a really unique place. It's a really special place. And 
it's a building that's alive. I always felt when I was driving to it, you know, Ted Kennedy's old quote was that he'd get goosebumps every time he walked into his office. Now, part of me was always cynical when I heard that until I started working there. And you drive into the, the parking garage at the Capitol and you go up and you just think about the people who've walked in these halls and the decisions that were made in this building. And you know, it, it, It's a building that's literally nearly as old as the Republic itself, and it's been front and center for everything. I, you know, I would be working in areas where Union soldiers were housed during the Civil War. I mean, you'd be in, in the committee room that saw the Watergate hearings, that saw the hearing about the sinking of the Titanic, uh, the civil rights hearing, I mean, all these different types of things. And so I just really loved that, being a history major on the day-to-day, and then developing personal relationships with people like Speaker John Boehner, Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, Speaker Pelosi when she was in charge, uh, Senator Reid, Senator McConnell, people like that. It was neat to experience that. In terms of one story, health care was really interesting to cover just because it lasted so long and it was so contentious and it had so many ups and downs and plots and turns. still going on. Um, Yeah, I never thought in a million years it should be still going on. I mean, I started covering that story in 2009, and it it was always there for such a long time. Uh, But, yeah, that one was was really remarkable. And for a specific, I think, night, there is one that I'll never forget, which was something called the Fiscal Cliff, which is that if they did not figure out a tax bill that everyone's taxes were going to go up, and it was set to expire on January 1st, 2013. So I literally spent my New Year's Eve four in the morning outside of Mitch McConnell's office, and he came out at four in the morning. Goes, "Happy New Year, we have a deal." And uh, that was just you kind of just part of you reexamines your life priorities when you're spending New Year's Eve outside Mitch McConnell's office. <laughs> but it was a good moment. It's a good moment. <laughs> and then conversely, too, looking back at that time, was there a story that was difficult to cover? I remember you were up in Boston a lot for the marathon bombing. Was there yeah, anything... that one was hard to see just because of how it affected so many people, many of whom I had known. Uh, you know, I didn't know anyone who was was directly injured, thankfully, but I did know a lot of people who were present around that site who, I think to this day, still carry a psychological burden. Uh, so that was tough. You know, it was, natural disasters were hard to cover. I did a few hurricanes. Uh, I, I I did a mass shooting at the Navy Yard in D.C. And, and to see that firsthand is certainly not easy. But I think the hardest one for me, honestly, was uh, to uh, one would be the the Newtown families when they came to Capitol Hill and yes. the legislation to strengthen background checks was was voted down, and they were in the chamber and they just. Well, they were sobbing uncontrollably, and, and, and you see someone who lost their child in such a gruesome way, uh, and, and the disappointment they have on their face, not even imagining what they went through when they lost their child. That was very difficult. And then also seeing the uh, children of, of people who had been deported, uh, moms and dads who had been deported. These were you know 10-year-old kids and who you know, were having to live in foster care. That was hard, too. So those, those there are definitely ones that grip on your heartstrings. Uh, and, and that's what I always tell people is you kind of look at government as this big beast, but there's government is really a bunch of personalities intertwined and a bunch of people intertwined, and you have to think about it in that way. It's not just you know a bureaucracy. There's real people behind every decision that's made.
Yep, it's real life, no question about uh-huh. it. Luke, uh-huh. how would you describe this, you know, quickly and the Obama presidency? How are we going to look back on it now as we're coming this is the final week or so? Uh, what, what do you, 30, 40 years from now, how do you think we're going to look at this time period from 2009 well, Dem- to 16? Democrats are going to make him out to be their Ronald Reagan. Uh, there's going to be a big push about the transformative nature of his presidency, being the first African-American, having the beautiful family in the White House, never having a real serious scandal, uh, someone who elevated the nation's discourse, you know, made us look better around the world. Uh, and then if you look at the highlights, uh, past the health care, something that has been a, a thorn in the side for many people for many years, albeit now more likely than not will be repealed, uh, killed bin Laden, uh, he'll say he he rescued the economy. There's I think there's some truth to that that he certainly prevented it from getting worse. Probably could have done more. Uh, and then in in the relationships being reopened with Cuba uh, in Iran, and then ending the Iraq War, uh, and ending Afghanistan. They're drawing down Afghanistan. Now the flip side, there is the rise of ISIS. There is the fact that partisanship has never been greater because he did campaign on trying to post. Uh, to try to, to, to calm division and, and have a post-racial America. And I would argue we're more divided. There's more racial divide than we've seen before. So it's a it's a complicated legacy. But I think if you compare it to the more recent presidents, if you compare it to George W. Bush, I think historians will definitely look at it more favorably than George W. Bush. And they'll look at it definitely more favorably to Bill Clinton. Because while Clinton had strong economic marks, a lot of what the criticism is now is of his presidency is that there was a lot of deregulation that happened under his watch that set in set in motion the economy uh, uh economic collapse that ultimately happened under Bush in, in 2008 so i think obama will will look better than bush and and clinton and and definitely uh bush uh 40 uh, the per- first Bush, who only had uh, who was 41, who only had one term, and I think he'll, they'll put him right there as the Democratic Reagan. That's my guess, and uh, then, certainly. And then conversely, what, I know you've taken a step back, but what do you make of all of this, the, the words Donald Trump and the president-elect Donald Trump, him, this whole, the way, and to me it's amazing how he's just uh, or risen up and uh, has become the next president in a couple of days. Yeah, he Donald Trump is a disruptor, and Donald Trump has you have to understand what he's done. I mean, you got to give him credit for he has in the span of a year, uh, he announced in the summer of 2015, I think of June, so we'll say a year and a half roughly. In the span of a year and a half, Donald Trump has simultaneously killed the Democratic Party, the Clinton machine, the Republican Party, the Bush machine, and the media as we know it. So uh, you can underestimate the guy all you want, and he does have some, definitely has limitations, but he's been able to do that. So he's tapped into something that, let's go through that again, Just to, I think people forget how significant this is. He killed the Democratic Party, the Clinton machine, he killed the Republican Party, he killed the Bush machine, and he killed media as we know it. How do you think pretty, he, pr- yeah. pretty darn significant. What do you, how do you think if you just I know it's a major many words can yeah. describe but how do you think he did that? Uh, I think he is somebody who tapped into the anger that is in the United States for a variety of reasons. You have uh economic 
anxiety that is around the country. You have a group of people, white working class voters, who feel humiliated, who feel forgotten over the last few years. You have a public that's attention span is very low, and you have a public that doesn't trust the media and doesn't trust institutions. And they look at someone like that who, on paper, is a businessman who appears to be wealthy, appears to have been successful, and the idea is that it's so bad now, it can't get any worse if we hand over the keys to this guy. The system needs to be blown up. And he masterfully would go toe-to-toe with any media outlet, and any time things would get bad, I think this is the, the amazing brilliance of Trump, is there are so many things that should have sunk him. The, the comments with Billy Bush on Access Hollywood, saying that John McCain is not a real war hero because he got captured. I mean, all these things that are just completely insane, that if anybody else had said them, would have totally sanked them. But what Trump would do when these things would happen is he would make something worse as a side story, or he'd just go and, and accept it and keep jammering on and, and act like nothing ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> it just kind of shows you that the American public doesn't necessarily care about character as much as we all thought. Uh, and I think it does show you that the prevalence of, of our new media environment. Um, That's what I was going to ask time, you. Where, where do you think the yeah. next four years, it really fascinates me. You see these press conferences with Trump two days right. ago. It was just, in a lot of ways, it was a circus. How, it is a circus. How, yeah. how do you think the media is, you know, you were a good person to ask, it's yeah. going to be in the next four years with Trump. What's your prediction of just how? It's not media in its current capacity is not built to correctly cover what's happening. And what do I mean by that? Is that you have a television apparatus, the nightly news, there's three nightly news broadcasts that still get about 22 million viewers combined. It just scratches the surface. It has, at most, a minute 30 television spot that is supposed to cover the complexities of everything that happened. Well, look at what happened during Trump's press conference. You had four issues that you could have talked about. You had the fact that he didn't really give up any of his companies, so there's ethical issues about how he'll deal with the White House. You had this whole thing about allegations regarding possible things that he'd done in Moscow that were improper, that he is literally being blackmailed by Russian agents. You have the fact that he admitted that for the first time that Vladimir Putin was behind the hacking that that directly helped him and hurt Secretary Clinton. And then on top of that, you have his combative relationship in nature with the press and how he went after it. And then you had all these hearings on Capitol Hill. So how in a minute 30 are you supposed to cut through all that, digest that, and put it in a way that explains the issue in totality to the American public? Yeah, you can do it on cable news, but the most Americans who watch cable news, they usually pretty much have their minds made up or they're really into this stuff and they watch it. They're junkies, okay? So how does it trickle down into television news? How does it trickle down into local news? Uh, it doesn't, not in a way that I think is, is done correctly. And you know, you know better than anybody, having been in smaller markets in the last few years, about how local newspapers have been decimated in those areas. Yes, and no they don't question. have they don't have the ability to cover national news to the level they once did. And people still trust their local newspapers and their local TV stations and, and whatnot. So when you have that complexity of news and that much scandal going on and it gets just thrown through in a way that people don't necessarily understand it all at one time, it makes it very difficult. Then you have the emergence of all this news in different social media platforms, whether it's Twitter, whether it's 
uh, Facebook, uh, Reddit, everything, okay? And you have fake news, and that has gotten a lot of people, and it's a huge, huge problem. And you then have people who kind of go into their cocoons, and they only believe what they want to believe, and they're willing to believe things that aren't entirely true. And I think President Obama, one thing I'll give him a lot of credit for in his farewell address, I didn't really see that farewell address as being very political. I think, of course, there was some backslapping for accomplishment. But the, that farewell address was really a warning that our current democracy is very much in peril because people have no belief in anything, with the exception of probably the military, that everyone's so distrustful of everything and everything is so disruptive that if you can't accept anything as being fact, if there's this, this complete absence of expertise, then what do you do? You know, well, what happens? And he was really sounding the alarm bells on it, and I, I made a comparison on Twitter that I think is accurate, that kind of what Dwight Eisenhower said back in the day about the military-industrial complex, but the, the problems of the United States continuously just funding a military and what that could mean for our foreign interventions that being problematic. That was Obama's kind of version of that, saying this is something that people really need to pay attention to in the next decades because this is the status quo and it's, it has potential to be very uh, dangerous. Joined by Luke Russert, Lights, Camera, Sports. A couple more minutes before we go, Luke. Thanks yeah, so yeah. for coming on. And, uh, you're right, next four years will be interesting, no question about it. Well, that. certainly. Let's talk about two. Let's talk about your life, what you've been like to, up to do lately. I know you've been traveling a lot. I like to especially, I know you have a fondness of uh, Nantucket Island. Nantucket. Yeah. What, talk about your, your work there. I know you're involved with the Boys and Girls Club. And just talk about growing up, going to Nantucket. I, I go to Cape Cod, Brewster, uh, all the time. Oh, so I love I, Brewster. Nice yeah, place. Yeah, I know the area well. Just talk about uh, your time in southeastern Mass. So Nantucket, really, for our family, my father went there uh right after college. He had never been. He had no money, came from South Buffalo, son of a garbage man, and he really, all his money went to paying back his his loans for school. And he had a friend who was from Massachusetts and basically said, you know, this was the uh, early 70s. Look, if we pool our money together for a ferry ride, you know, I'm sure we can just go over there and sleep on the beach and and get by and we'll have money for (laughs) beer and a burger and blah, blah. So they ended up basically spending five days there and crashing on people's couches and, and hanging out on the beach and whatnot. And he, my father always said to himself, if I ever have the money or the ability, I'm going to come back here consistently because I enjoyed it so much. And uh, you know, through a lot of hard work and, and luck working in politics and Senator Moynihan and Governor Cuomo and then often on the NBC, he started going to Nantucket with my mother. I think it was the first trip they ever took together. Wow. In the early 80s. Yeah. And then we started renting a house there in uh, the early 90s. Ended up purchasing a house in 1998. And I think for our family, it was just a really nice place to, one, get away from it all, to be stereotypical. But Nantucket, when we started going there, you really were removed. Uh, cell phones didn't work. Uh, there was really only... You know, the four or five TV channels you would get through an antenna. Cable was very limited. You know, people really only had cable in town. It was hard to get cable outside of town. Yeah. And we would always stay outside. I mean, and that's what Nantucket... no internet. Nantucket yeah. means far away island in Native America. That's right, what it, right. That's the yeah, literal you know, definition. It's, it's, you know, it's 40 miles out. I mean, it's, it's away. Yeah. And um, it was great. And you would focus on your relationships with your family and your friends. And you'd go fishing and bike riding and hiking and, and learning how to operate a boat and 
it was just a lot of fun. And back then, there was always some wealthy people who would go there, but it was not like it is now. I mean, back then it would be how many holes you have in your khakis and how old is your car. <laughs> and, you know, who makes the best tuna sandwich. <laughs> and now it's kind of transitioned into this nouveau chic, you know, people have... I knew Nantucket had changed when a few summers ago I I went to a restaurant where I used to get a beer and chowder, and, and the guy at the door had an earpiece and a microphone. Wow, to, yeah. Uh, yeah, to know, yeah, yeah, and the, and the house music was bumping. So wow. uh, we are involved with the Boys and Girls Club there. My mother goes up there all summer. This past summer I had a lot of time up there, which was nice. Very therapeutic place, very beautiful place. Uh, it's changed a lot, though, and it is changing. They, there are a lot more year-round residents now. Uh, there's been a construction boom. It's totally recovered since the economy collapsed in 2008. And it's a place that I think the next few years are going to be really interesting uh, because they have to deal with the swelling population as well as sort of see what type of community they're going to have. Uh, is is it just going to be a community that, that caters to these summer residents or is it a community that's involved you know, 365, 24-7, uh, and how they move forward. So it's a uh, it's a unique place. If you have an opportunity, go there. And I can tell people, yeah, one of the things I really like in this current world we live in, with with Airbnb and all these Booking dot com deals and whatnot, it's never been cheaper to get over there now. I mean, you can find space there. Might not be the best space, but you can find space now. Oh yeah, especially when I take the car ferry. You know, you know that three hour car ferry. Yeah, I know it well. Believe me, it's I, great. I love uh, you know Surfside Beach, Maticate, crabbing yeah, right by Maticate there. Yeah, and, and Lake. Yeah. You know, it's, it was a really good it's time. The best. Yeah, it was fun growing up there in the summer. I really enjoyed it. I had my first job there. I uh, I've cleaned a public golf course. I cleaned out the the cart barn. Uh, every day, I was I was the golf cart kid, which was great because it taught me how to drive at a very young age. But uh, it, you know, it was fun. You come home, 14 years old, just grease all over your face, dust all over your face, and, and you know, back then, you know, I loved it. It was fun to get dirty when you were a young kid working. That's great. Well, Luke, we're down to our final minute. Quickly, could you just tell people uh, your plans, what you've been up to in the future? I mean, oh, I've been you... traveling. I did a lot of travel through Europe. I did a lot of travel through South America. I left NBC in July because I wanted a break. I was tired having gone at it gung-ho since I literally graduated with you, and uh, I've been enjoying my time away. I'll probably take another six months, eight more months off getting this travel in. And uh, then I'll come back probably to media in some capacity, but we'll see. I'm keeping all my options open. And uh, I do do some media. I do the Tony Kornheiser podcast. I'll actually be on there this Monday. Uh, so, so check that out. I'm on, I'm on there on occasion on the Kornheiser podcast. Well, we definitely will. Luke, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much time uh, for taking time for Lights, Camera, Sports. It's really a joy catching up on BC politics, a lot of good times. Oh, yeah, man, it's good. And, and, and people should know how great a career you had in BC. I mean, this has been a passion of yours since I first met you. WZBC. You 18, 19 years old. I mean, this is this is what you wanted to do. And, and God love you for making it a reality and working hard and making it happen. And keep it an ass, man, seriously. All right. Well, Luke, thanks so much for joining us. We'll catch up with you down the road. Hey, absolutely. Good luck. All right. Take care. And thanks so much for joining us here on Lights, Camera, Sports. And special thanks to Luke Russert. Uh, it was a great 45 minutes catching up with him. Stay tuned. Stick with us for more episodes coming up on Lights, Camera, Sports. I'm Mike Galtieri, signing off.